page 655, uh, in case you've forgotten. We're going to be looking a little more uh, closely at Jonah 3. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you know we're kind of halfway through Jonah uh, and his story, but his story goes on. Uh, we're going to learn a lot more tonight. But we need God to help us, so let's pray. Dear Lord and Father, we thank you for that trustworthy and true saying that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sins. Uh, We praise you as our uh, one and only eternal, immortal and invisible God. And we ask that as we come now and spend time hearing you address us, uh, that you would move in us in such a way that we would want to honour and glorify you in everything we do. Uh, Father, speak to us now by your word and spirit, uh, that it would be our delight to bring you honour. In Jesus' name, Amen. Perhaps you've noticed that when you hang around Christian people long enough, there's a whole new language you start speaking. A language that actually needs decoding when you go outside these walls next door uh, or down the street. Uh, Now, of course, if you've been someone who's fairly used to church culture uh, for a long time, um, then you may not have even noticed that we speak this kind of strange language. Uh, But if you're more recent to church and more recent to church culture, you would have noticed there are certain words, certain kind of church jargon. Words like hallowed. Hallowed. People don't do a whole lot of hallowing, uh, except here at church. Uh, Other religious words. There are religious words like holy and sanctified and righteousness. Uh, Words that if you tried to kind of flip them into everyday conversation at work or pop them in an email, uh, perhaps you will find you a little strange. Words that people who've been around, we've been around church for a while, just kind of use, um, even if we're not entirely sure what they mean. Uh, repentance is another of those kind of churchy jargon words. Uh, I think you hear the word repentance and it conjures up images of you know, a fire and brimstone preacher bashing the pulpit and you know, demanding people repent before it's too late. Um, or alternatively, maybe you, you know, kind of imagine those guys with A-frames, slightly strange guys with A-frames stuck on them and you know, repent, the kingdom is nigh or something like that and they stand on the edge of a major street for people to kind of come and perhaps learn from. Uh, repentance simply means to turn around. Uh, stop what you're doing and go and do the opposite. Uh, I, I'm one of these strange people who actually enjoys visiting Canberra. Uh, in fact, uh, we chose it as a holiday destination earlier this year. Uh, it always strikes me as a, a nice, neat and orderly place, perhaps a little too ordered. Uh, they even have special U-turn signs down in Canberra. Uh, they're not signs that stop you from doing U-turns, they're actually signs that say U-turns are permitted here. Uh, if, if you're going to put the same kind of sign up in churchy jargon words, you'd say that's a repentance permitted sign. And we just read in Jonah 3, or Alex read for us, a repentance story. There's actually a series of them. And perhaps the most remarkable one in there may have slipped under your nose without you noticing. So I want you to have a look again at 3 verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and he did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. See, God changes his mind. As they'd hoped in verse 9, he relents. The disaster that he promised doesn't come. In other words, God repents. 
what do we make of this remarkable repentance? Uh, you know, did God get something wrong at this point? Does it mean God is like us? Does his repentance threaten his perfection? It doesn't mean that God doesn't know everything. You know, and what could possibly happen to make God change? And how do we, more deeply, how do we respond to a repentant God? And how does a repentant God fit into our kind of neat little systems of trying to understand him and the world? When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and he did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. And now, of course, to make sense of that verse at the end, we need to understand the whole story. We need to see what it would be that would make God change his mind, change his course. And so it all starts with our our friend Jonah and his repentance. So verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. Now we're back, if you were here with us two weeks ago, we're back again at the start of the book. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah and this time he does as he should. At long, long last, Jonah has repented. Rather than fleeing the Lord for pushing his luck a second time, he obeys and God is dealing graciously with Jonah. Notice, um, God actually just lays the instruction exactly the same down to Jonah rather than kind of rubbing his face in it. He just gently says the same thing. And so Jonah goes and he carries... God's message to this great city. Uh, we're repeatedly told in the story that, that Nineveh is a great city. It's an important place. It was called great in chapter 1. It's called great again here. Um, its importance is because of how big it is. It's a vast city. Uh, three days journey just to get across it. Now you've got to remember this is times before the Industrial Revolution. It's the times before people flocked to cities. Um, this is a major, major city. But God is not fooled by its greatness or its importance. God doesn't measure on human standards when he looks at a place like this. The lasting memory I have of uh, visiting Europe and its grand cities is the imposing beauty of its great sites. I remember how impressive some of the the architectural features are. From the the Arc de Triomphe to uh, the Cathedral of Notre Dame the Colossal Colosseum in Rome. Uh, we made it down to uh, the ruins in Pompeii. You know, there is there is something striking about how grand these places are. And there's something that says that you know these were great people, a great culture that produces it. it. Sticks in my mind. But what also sticks in my mind is a conversation I had once with a, a lecturer of mine at Theological College, um, and what his impressions were of you. So he'd been to similar places but what he saw was the spiritual desolation in people's lives. Now he looked beyond the magnificent architecture and beyond the kind of culture that could produce it to see the dark heart of a place like Europe. Now the world knew the greatness of Nineveh but God sees the greatness of their sin. Now we're not told um, the details of their wickedness uh, I, I think we can guess that it was fairly serious to bring God to this point. So there was a, a time in Genesis 15, God is speaking to Abram and he's saying, um, I'm going to drive the Canaanites out of the land, give it to your descendants, but um, I'm going to wait 400 years uh, until their, their violence has increased that much. I want to give them a chance. 
Yeah, God doesn't rush into sending calamity. And so we can only imagine that Nineveh uh, is a great and evil and violent place. And so the message in verse 4 is short. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. No call for repentance at this point, just devastation. A lone voice of Jonah going out saying, Doom is coming. And I suppose if we look at Nineveh, we can only wonder what God sees of our city. Now, God isn't going to be marvelling at our city, looking at our harbour, going, Wow, what a spectacular harbour. Isn't it beautiful? You know, He made that. Whatever darkness there is in the life of our city, in the the life of us in the life of our neighbours that's what God will see well Jonah our orthodox friend it's great he seems on track and for the moment he kind of fades into the background and it's the unorthodox people of Nineveh who come to the foreground for us and their response to Jonah's preaching is um, nothing less than astounding Uh, we're going to look at a couple of verses uh, that show their response. As we do, notice a couple of things. Notice the speed of their repentance. And notice who gets involved and notice just how extreme they are. So verse verse 5. The Ninevites believed God, they declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Now when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He took off his royal robes, He covered himself with sackcloth and he sat down in the dust. And then he issued a decree, a proclamation in in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Speed. Speed is astounding. Remember, this is a great city, takes three days to travel, but within the first day of Jonah preaching, the news of coming judgment has spread across town and so Jonah can basically, you know, take the next two days off, knock off early. Um, His job is done, the message is out there. A whole city is brought to a standstill by a blunt eight-word message. As for who gets involved, well, the king rises and at that moment we should expect, ah, it's action. You know, the man of power is coming up off his throne. What's he going to do? Well, he strips off his finery and he sits in the filth of ashes. Now, it's a sign of humility to sit in that, those kind of ashes. Uh, and this is from the man of most importance in a great city. And from the highest to the lowest of the city, they're doing the same. Now, this great king has admitted, oh, I've got nothing. I can do nothing. Now, can you imagine a circumstance that would reduce you know, Kevin Rudd um, or Queen Elizabeth to do the same? To, to, to say, oh, I've got nothing. I've just got to stoop so low. I've got to strip down, wear you know, potato sacks, cover myself in filth, show that, yeah, I'm at your mercy. And he passes the law, the king. Um, but it's not just him, but all the animals, all the people and all the animals have to do the same. I think the point of throwing the animals in is just to say, not that they were a simple bunch of cows, uh, but more the sense that we're taking this to the extreme. Everybody, you know, even your animals, throw them in as well. 
there to fast, they're to pray to God and the key is they've got to change their life so they're no longer to do evil and violence. It's the idea of unlimited repentance. There's, there's nothing out of bounds in this repentance. Everything is up for grabs. Everything is turned around. The whole city changes its habits overnight. And now I've seen those, those government ads that are on at the moment about the uh, dangers of obesity. Uh, perhaps you've seen the waistline test ads. Um, and I know how I measure up and I know I need to change my eating habits. But if any of you have tried changing you know, particular eating, eat, eating patterns or, or giving up any kind of bad habit, it's not easy. And yet these people change their entire way of life on the spot. Uh, it's a U-turn, the ultimate U-turn. Brought about by eight words. And they respond in that kind of astounding way because, yes, it was Jonah preaching, but it wasn't Jonah they believed. Have a look at verse 5. Who did they believe? They believed God. Now, I've spent um, basically my entire life in Sydney, uh, a great city like Nineveh. Uh, and I know if someone walked down George Street uh, proclaiming uh, that Sydney had 40 days to go, I'm fairly confident I could predict what would happen. Um, he'd be ignored and given lots of space. People would avoid him. He'd be a little bit unstable, wouldn't he? Uh, and yet the people of Nineveh hear not this prophet Jonah, but they hear God. And so the whole city changes. Uh, even today, I... I know of people who radically change major parts of their life, life patterns of greed or um, life patterns of you know, speech where they, they would uh, be harsh and put people down, people who've changed their, their sex life. Um, all radical change, not because they heard people speak to them, but they heard God. And there's one word, I suppose, that captures the way these people have changed. It's humility. If you were here last week, you might remember Jonah was in the belly of the fish and when he was there, what was he doing? He was singing a song of thanksgiving. He didn't apologise to God. Um, he didn't decide to change any of his actions or ways, but he was just confident, I'll be saved. You know, salvation will come from the Lord. And yet the people of Nineveh uh, are the opposite. They're, they're almost embarrassing, quite frankly, in the way that they roll around in the filth. They stop these lifelong habits. And they don't even have a guarantee it will help them. Did you notice that in verse 9? Who knows, they say, what the king says. Who knows? God may yet relent and show compassion. You know, perhaps, perhaps God will be kind. We're not completely certain here because they know God actually doesn't owe them anything. There are no guarantees, but they realise that's the only hope they have. You've got to compare the two. Jonah, this, this orthodox guy, confident of salvation, so confident he doesn't feel like he needs to apologise to God. And the Ninevites, this, I suppose, unorthodox bunch of sinners, they don't have a, they don't have a right to talk to God and, and they cover themselves in shame and they ask for God's favour and you've got to wonder which one brought a smile to God's face. Picture in your mind the, uh, the typical Christian. I won't ask you to draw it. But what does she look like? How does he behave? Now, often I suspect we think um, that good Christianity is, is seen in being comfortable, 
conservative, well-mannered people. But true Christianity has radical repentance at its heart. True Christianity is not seen in in spiritual self-sufficiency and respectability. Uh, And yet, often in church we can create that impression, can't we? We can create the impression uh, in church that everyone has their life together. Now, I know of someone who, uh, in their church, in their particular home group, they feel like they actually can't share their struggles because they're convinced that it's just them, um, that no one else is struggling with these things. Now, we've got to ask, is that our culture where, where repentance is unwelcome? Now, true Christianity is, is marked by willingness to actually admit faults and throw yourself at God's mercy. Not, it's not marked by people who, who put up barriers and attempt to hide their sin before God, but admit it freely to them. True Christianity is marked by people who, who would rather, in Jesus' words, have their eyes gouged out than sin. We need, to, we need to beware putting up those kind of fronts. And we need to beware as well of, of comparing ourselves to you know, that gifted guy or girl sitting next to you in the future. Now, instead, what we need to do is actually love other people by leading them in examples of real repentance just like the king did in Jonah 3. That's what the Apostle Paul did. We read from uh, 1 Timothy there, Paul talking about his own life. Now, if there was anyone who could have put up front of saying, I'm respectable, I'm spiritually self-sufficient, it it was Paul, but instead, no, no, he freely admits he was the worst of sinners. And what's his real hope? That Christ Jesus came came into the world to save sinners of whom he is the worst. That's Christian repentance. That's what the Ninevites did. Presuming nothing, just going for mercy. And so we find ourselves back again at verse 10. That more remarkable repentance than Ninevites. So verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and he didn't bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. God repents because he sees their radical repentance. We, we can see now what changes God's mind. He sees what the, how they respond and God repents, he relents from his intention to punish. And this is remarkable. It's not remarkable though because it, it's the only time we hear of it in the Bible. Um, it actually happens in a few other places. Um, flick, flick with me, grab your Bible, turn to page 63. And keep a page in uh, Jonah. Turn to page 63. You have there Exodus chapter 32. We can pick it up from verse 9. Uh, it's just happened is that God has rescued his people, Egypt, out of slavery. Their response is to worship a cow. Uh, verse 32, uh, sorry, verse 9 of 32. I have seen these people, Yahweh the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff necked people. Now leave me alone, that my anger may burn against them and I may destroy them. And then I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains, wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn your fierce anger. Relent or repent. And do not bring disaster on your people. 
Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac and Israel to whom you swore by your own self I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. And verse 14, Then the Lord relented or repented and he did not bring on his, own, on his people the disaster that he had threatened. Now God's fury is burning and yet Moses persuades him, no, no, don't do what you intend. God changes his mind, he repented. Uh, it happens again in, in 2 Samuel 24. Um, you can look that one up later on where, where God again was going to destroy his people for the sin of uh, David their king and yet just even as he starts, he changes his mind. It happens again, Psalm 106. It happens again, um, Amos 7, uh, page 651. It's near Jonah. Page 651 is uh, Amos 7. Amos is being treated to a vision of how God is going to treat his people. Well, this is what the Sovereign Lord showed me in Amos 7.1. He's preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested just as the second crop was coming up. And when they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob, turn for God's people Israel, how can Jacob survive? He's so small. And so the Lord relented. He repented. This will not happen, the Lord said. The same thing happens again in verse 6. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the Sovereign Lord says. God's people are rebellious. He threatens destruction but changes his mind. He repents. You can almost say that God has a habit of changing his mind to spare his people. But what is remarkable about the Jonah incident a couple of pages later is it's the only time we're told in the Old Testament of God changing his mind for people who he has nothing to do with, no relationship with. You, you might expect a father to change his mind from punishing a child who, uh, who misbehaves. But you wouldn't expect the same from a judge for a stranger in the docks before him. The Ninevites realise they can't call on the special favours that Israel could. They weren't God's promised people. They've got nothing to offer. What's their hope? God's character. And you see, God might change his mind, but he doesn't change his character. And so, it's not a cause to worry when God changes his mind, because he only changes it so he can be more loving and more compassionate than he was before. You know, that, that's, that's the pattern in Jonah 3, isn't it? You know, God dealt gently with the rebellious prophet Jonah. God may not call the Ninevites directly, you need to repent. But the fact that he sent a messenger to warn them there's destruction coming in 40 days, why else would he do it if he didn't want to show compassion and have them avoid punishment? He repents from that so he can display his compassion. Because that's his character. So what do you do with a God who repents? I want to say first of all, make, make sure that you're your right thinking, your orthodoxy, hasn't boxed God in. And I want to encourage you, it's something we need to keep doing all our lives, is keep struggling to understand God better. Keep reading his word, draw the different strands together to, to make our picture of him clearer. But, but as you do that, you will grow in your understanding of him. 
But as you do that, don't, don't make God shrink to fit into your neat little categories. The repenting God needs to expand your understanding of God, particularly of his sovereignty. Now, yet God is in control of absolutely everything. Matthew 10 tells us you know, not even a bird falls to the ground without God's will. And yet God is in control of every individual salvation. So in John 3, um, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. And you, know, you don't need to be a doctor to realise you can't give birth to yourself. But God's control is complex. It's not simplistic. He's not playing with marionette puppets. And so beware of boxing God in by right thinking and assuming that you actually have God encompassed and you understand him and you've got him covered. Beware standing over him and making him fit in your box. Because his ways are higher than your ways and my ways. The real response to God is be amazed. Praise him and be in awe of the fact that he is greater than you will ever be. Secondly, you need to let it expand. The repenting God needs to expand your understanding of just how concerned God is for people. Now don't, don't put limits on whom God might actually have plans to save. God's people are a motley and messy bunch. It's the picture that should be really seen here in church. But, but we, in you know, Revelation 7, it's from, from every tribe and nation and language. In 1 Corinthians 6, uh, we see God's people are made up of sexually immoral, greedy, thieving, slandering, swindling bunch. Now that's what they were. God relents and he shows mercy to a, a huge array of people. I remember going to a party and I met a guy named Shorty. Uh, he was a guy with, uh, with lots of tats and a uh, shaved head and uh, plenty of piercings in all sorts of parts of his body. And I was thinking, oh, here we go. This will be interesting. Uh, it actually turned out as we got chatting that he was a Christian. Uh, genuinely saved, but he had a lot of trouble finding a church that actually welcomed him. Yeah, how, easy, how easy it is for us to, to actually limit God and to reduce his power and reduce who he might save. You know, he was a guy, he was actually welcoming God's kingdom and yet his people, people like us, hadn't grasped that and so he wasn't welcoming their little part of the kingdom. I can put it that way. Final thing with the repenting God, be excited and rejoice. Rejoice that someone like you can be saved. Yeah, and be as radical in your repentance, in your turning around as the Ninevites were. Yeah, admit your sins, disgrace yourself before God and lead others in doing that. Yeah, lead our city in that. Show them what it is to, to stop putting up fronts and admit how weak we are and how much we need them. And then be delighted to see how God shows compassion and does not bring about destruction. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and compassionate God, uh, that you change your mind so that you can be even more merciful. We ask that you would help us to be people who uh, stand in awe and wonder at you and your ways and that it would be a great source of delight for us. Uh, And we pray particularly that we would be people who take repentance seriously, take changing our lives seriously. Uh, that we wouldn't attempt to put up fronts with you, but rather we'd admit our weakness and throw ourselves on your mercy.
and cross now. Amen.